0: Well, good morning or good afternoon, depending on your time zone. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach who works to help individuals, organizations, and communities realize their fullest potential. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. On today's live broadcast, we're discussing the latest rethinking around student development theory. This episode of Student Affairs Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. Participate in today's discussion, by tweeting us using higher ed live, hashtag higher ed live. Thanks to Erica Thompson for tweeting at higher ed live and monitoring today's back channel. If you have questions for our panelists, please tweet at hashtag higher live and we'll do our best to incorporate them into today's discussion. We broadcast Student Affairs Live approximately twice each month on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q, Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit. Visit PlatformQEDU.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They are free and easy to access in the video archives at HigherLive.com. Or you can take Hired Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Hired Live is produced by M Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Thanks to M Stoner for their continued support and sponsorship of Student Affairs Live and all the Hired Live channels. And now, on with today's show. Today, we're talking about Rethinking Student Development Theory, this great new book that is out uh, with co-editors of the new book, Rethinking Student Development Theory Using Critical Frameworks. So let's begin by meeting our panelists and our editors. Uh, If you could just introduce yourselves, uh, that would be great. I think we're going to begin with DL.
1: Okay. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and greetings generally to everyone that is watching live and everyone that will be watching later on. I'm D.L. Stewart. Um, pronouns are he, him, his, and they, them, their. I am currently a professor of uh, in the School of Education and co-coordinator of our Student Affairs and Higher Education programs at Colorado State University.
2: All right. Hello. Good afternoon, and uh, join my colleagues in thanking you for being with us today, and or whenever it is that you tune in. Um, I'm Susan Jones, and I'm a professor in the Higher Education Student Affairs Program at Ohio State University. Um, prior to that, I was a faculty member at the University of Maryland, and before that, was a student affairs educator uh, in the areas of residence life, leadership development, and uh, as a dean of students. Thanks.
3: And hi, I'm Elisa Abus. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I'm an associate professor at Miami University in the Student Affairs and Higher Education program. Um, And I think one of the kind of neat things about the three of us presenting together, one thing we all have in common is that we all Hail from Ohio State originally, where Susan was both DL and my advisor. And so we both, this is a really interesting evolution of our early learning of student development theory, initially from Susan, and now 20 some years later, working together on this book.
0: That is a good fun fact, mm-hmm. and I am also a Susan Jones advisee, so I I, I knew that about you and uh, Elisa and myself. I didn't know that about DL. So, uh, quite the lineage you have here, Susan, and uh, and now DL is a distinguished professor. I don't know if that's a technical. I consider you distinguished <laughs> at um, at Colorado <laughs> Lynch, which is My master's all the water So let's so go go around. Yes, uh, yeah. Not no.
1: I am not distinguished. Not distinguished. I, I think I just got your <laughs> I you a promotion. Can I have one also, I'll Keith? <laughs> sure, I'm awake with the holiday that
0: comes with that. But I am very kind Thank and you. have no authority whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this is the book that, that we have that we're here to discuss. Uh, the three of you uh, are editors. You have written, you have brought other authors in to share some new thinking. And I love the notion of, of rethinking. Um, but um, I would love to hear kind of the origin story uh, of this book. Um, how did this come to be? How did it originate? Uh, what were you trying to accomplish? So maybe, Susan, you can begin by telling us how this, this project came to be.
2: Yeah, thank you. First, uh, let me say in my enthusiasm of um, saying hello and thank you, I neglected to say that my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, And I'm also beginning to see my role as the old one uh, (gasps) uh, among the group. Um, But it's really exciting for me to be here with DL and Elisa and Keith. Um, We prefer WISE. WISE, thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, So... um, From from my perspective, uh, from my memory, um, uh, the way that this book got started was that I was serving as one of the editors of New Directions for Student Services with Sherry Watt, and um, Elisa was actually working on a volume, holding it up right here, uh, 2016, on critical perspectives on student development theory. And um, as many of you may be aware, New Directions uh, is designed to be relatively brief treatments of contemporary issues in student affairs, research-based, but, but brief. And I read that volume and I thought, this is really good. And this is just the beginning of the conversation. And so I talked with Elisa and DL. Um, Elisa, whenever I say to her, Alisa, I have an idea. She cringes um, and puts her head down. DL was much more gracious, Um, (laughs) uh, but I talked with the two of them because we all do share this love of theory and um, a belief in the transformative potential of theory. And so the three of us kind of put our heads together about whether or not we could build upon what Elisa got started in the New Directions volume and develop it into um, a new treatment, an innovative treatment of student development theory. And I think we went into it, and I will let DL and Elisa add their parts, but I think we went into it wanting to push the boundaries and be creative while also honoring uh, what we all learned um, along the way about student development theory. So there was both um, an interest in scrutinizing at the same time as appreciating uh, what had come before. So that's how I tell that story.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, I love the both <laughs> and of
0: appreciating and, and rethinking uh, together. together. Who's, who's got a slightly different version of that story?
3: <laughs> I'll qualify my cringeworthiness here, uh, but but it's, it's true. I mean, with Susan has good ideas and it means we work hard together on these ideas. So sometimes I have learned to duck and cover when she suggests things, but on this one, it was really quite compelling. And cause when I was editing the new direction series, I did feel like that book or the new directions book. I did feel like that book very much was a bridge between where student development theory is and where it needs to be heading. And so I was feeling some of those limitations, but it really, for me, the reason I felt compelled to, to work on this project came mostly from my teaching. And so that was why I was really, I did want to do this was I felt like when, as I was using the um, New Directions book and other literature, and we spent a lot of time critiquing existing student development theories. And that was terrific. We would, you know, we would talk about critical theories and post-structural theories, and trying to talk about how the students who I was teaching were really a very diverse um, group of individuals, you know, whether or not they saw themselves. And a lot of students didn't. And what I was finding was I was starting, you know, I was feeling good in some ways about my teaching that we were spending a lot of time critiquing existing theories. But what I also realized was that I was, I think I was doing some harm to the students and that students were, to sit in a class and just see all of the limitations, to say the theories aren't speaking to you. I mean, where does that really get a student? And so for me, I just felt really compelled that we needed to be writing about something that was much more hopeful and something that really did show that there are not just possibilities, but actual ways we can talk about theory That where students are going to see themselves, and not only see, um, and not only be reminded that they are invisible, and that's what this book does, is it makes students visible um, in ways that they deserve to be.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm really energized by hearing that, Alisa, because I think it is so easy to be critical and critique what is out there. Uh, but to move from that critique to then what what could come next and what does that lead us to and, and where does uh point us um I think is is really, really great. Um yeah, what would you like to add to how this project came to be?
1: Sure. What what I remember in terms of origin story was that this all I, I got um uh, I got a- accosted at the <laughs> Ash conference. I think it was an, a- I think it was an Ash it's conference ish. and, and Susan came up to me and said, Hey, <laughs> I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> and, and, and then, um, and she introduced the idea to me. Uh, and I said, Oh, that sounds really awesome and was a wonderful way. I had also been using the NDSS monograph that Elisa edited uh, and had the opportunity, and, and even as, you know, so Susan and I have a chapter in there on the evolution of student development theory where we introduced the idea of waves, right? And um, of development, and this seemed to be a wonderful opportunity to continue that conversation, and as both of them have already stated, to be able to ground it in a way in what else could be. You know, I have taught student development theory for most, during most of my career as a faculty member, Um, first in, um, at Ohio University, uh, which I, so I didn't mention sort of my, the background in terms of career, but taught it at Ohio University when I first got to Bowling Green State University. I taught it for about the first half of the 12 years I was at Bowling Green. And actually at the time that Susan and Elisa uh, approached me with this idea, we started talking about this, I was not teaching a student development theory course. And this provided a way for me to get back into that conversation um, in a in in a sense, in a way apart from being in midst in the midst of teaching it, um, and looking at it from a different lens um, as someone who has, done research and scholarship in the area have had taught it and wanted to be able to teach it again and wanted to be able to do something different um, so similar to what Elisa was talking about wanting to be able to conceive and do more than just tell students you're not here you know um, And so that led, when we think about how the book is organized, these three sections, um, really thinking about, so what are the ways, what are the theoretical frameworks that could be brought to bear? And thinking about how students learn, develop, and grow, and become. And that's part one. And then part two, thinking about, so what are the essential constructs? That we talk about, that we rely on, uh, so dissonance and resilience and autonomy and uh, knowledge, um, context and you know social construction of identities, etc. That there are some things that have become uh, part of the canon, and how we talk about identity development, and then in using those constructs to in, in interrogating them through different kind through critical. Theoretical paradigms, right? And and then in the final section, this and this was really exciting to me. in Thinking about so, how does this all show up in practice? What does it mean? I um, mean, re- being reminded of the fact. So as we continued in the book, I came to Colorado State University and began teaching student development theory again. And having students constantly ask, well, what does this have to do with practice? Uh, (laughs) How do I apply this to my practice? How do I apply this to my practice and recognizing that we needed to do that in this text in very deliberate and specific ways? And deciding, well, let's look at some and interrogate some of the, you know, sacred notions of practice and student affairs, you know, and we'll talk more about um, the different sections as we go through the through the broadcast. But that's generally how we wanted to engage this conversation about um, student development theory, and not just think about identities. There have been a lot of work on critical notions of thinking about identity. Social identities and how they develop for students in college, but really wanting to think broadly beyond that to all the different other domains of development that exist. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate this this origin story, and I was I was trying to make a comic book reference and see if anybody get got it. <laughs> And I think it's Shane, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that, right. said uh, described th- th- this as the academic Avengers episode. So you did get some superhero uh, street cred out of that, and I- and I welcome that. Um, but but, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, sharing kind of a different story than Elisa, who is teaching and teaching and teaching this, and in it, and the conversation with students really reflecting. and and rather than just wanting to critique how this isn't good enough, because um, student development theory is intended to be a guide for some of our practice, and if we're critiquing that it's not a great guide, well, then what should some guide for my practice be? And then DL, you coming in with this—I'd been away from it for a while, and and being away from it is also a valuable perspective. And teaching other courses, exploring other scholarship, bringing this in, um, and then you uh, absolutely set up uh, where we're going next very well by talking about the three parts of the book. The first part. Uh, moving into third-wave theory and then rethinking and then applying to practice. So let's just have each of you walk us through the parts of the book um, and share with us. We're gonna we're gonna begin with Susan talking about part one which is um, the third wave of student development theory. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about this part of the book, what it offers, and some highlights for us.
2: Sure. So before I do that, maybe it's uh, important to say a couple things about um, how we thought about, wrote about this idea of critical frameworks. So we spent a little bit of time um, writing about the use of critical frameworks as kind of an umbrella term uh, because we wanted to make sure that readers that we acknowledged that critical theories and post-structural theories actually have different disciplinary origins. There's some overlapping ideas, but there are also some distinctly different ideas. So um, our focus in using critical um, perspectives as an organizing idea was to elevate discussions of, Uh, the role of power, marginalization, the importance of context, the importance of socio-historical influences, um, the importance of praxis, and this goal of um, liberatory potential. So um, that's sort of the overarching framework for the book. And then what section one, part one, was uh, designed to do is to provide a brief introduction to six different theories that uh, we thought would be important lenses through which student development could be um, analyzed and reconsidered. Um, We point out that these aren't the only six, that there are more, but these are the six that we thought Perhaps there was the greatest uh, resonance with student development, and also those that had been almost entirely untreated in student development literature. Um, So these include critical race theory, intersectionality, crip theory, queer theory, um, indigenous epistemologies, um, uh, feminist theories, Did I did I name six? I think so. Yes. Um, And what we asked each of those chapter authors to do was to provide a a brief introduction. So these chapters are short um, because we recognize that each one of these theories is book worthy, several book worthy in and of themselves. So we knew we couldn't do them full justice. So we asked the authors to provide a brief introduction to the series, um, to make some comments about how student development might look different if these theories were applied, and then to provide some references, resources uh, for readers with an encouragement to delve more deeply. Uh, and then the idea was that these chapters became um, the springboard okay were the chapters in part two. Um, And I should say that the first chapter in in part one is actually building upon the chapter that DL and I wrote for New Directions on the waves. Um, And I had the great uh, privilege of actually writing this chapter while I was at the beach on sabbatical. So the whole metaphor of waves, uh, like resonated with me in in new waves. But um, in that chapter, what I try to suggest is that with waves, there, there's no way to separate one wave from the next, that uh, one wave contains the water from the previous wave and the next wave. And so uh, thinking about theory, the evolution of theories in that way is that most of the time, what we create is based on something that comes before. Uh, even if it's a critique of what comes before, you're, you're building, extending, revising, recreating um, based on some ideas that come before. So uh, in that chapter, we look at first-wave theories, second-wave theories, and third-wave theories being the critical perspectives that we then advance in the, the rest of the chapters in part one. So that's that, my
0: that's a good summary. I, I think there's a joke here from three advisees of Susan Jones about what she considers short and what other people consider short often being different, <laughs> but, but these actually are very short. There are about nine or ten pages, each of them, and I found this to be a very useful and helpful because um, I think we've all heard about critical race theory or curve theory or, or these things. And uh, although people may have heard of them and may use that language, we don't always have a good understanding. And then you go to really dig into it, and there's nine books and they're all 350 pages. It can be overwhelming. And this is such a great way to get introduced to some of these things, but then also point you to where you can do really a deep dive further on. So I found. This, this first part and these opening chapters to be very useful, very helpful uh, in providing a lot of really good context. And some folks might be more familiar with queer theory than other things or, or, or vice versa, but it really helps bring them together and see the similarities and the differences in these third wave theories. Um, and so part part two is the rethinking or the reconsidering or the unlearning about um, student development theory. Uh, and uh, Lisa, why don't you kind of walk us through that part of the book?
3: Sure. So in the S- section two, we use the critical post-structural theories that Susan just talked about to actually reimagine different constructs of student development theory. So we you, we talked about, we have seven di- seven chapters, seven different constructs Um, We we critique and reimagine the constructs of resilience, dissonance, social construction of identity, authenticity, agency, knowledge, and context. And just, we recognize that those aren't the only seven constructs of student development theory, but these were seven that we saw really spanning a number of different theories, uh, seven that were applicable to so many students and just really just yeah, stood out to, to us as ones that were important to, to take on. We chose to talk about constructs and reimagine constructs rather than particular student development theories or families of theories because We felt that if we were critiquing particular theories, we were falling into the trap of continuing to center theories that are grounded in dominant norms, grounded in whiteness, in maleness, and then present the critical theories as alternatives to those dominant theories. And we wanted to avoid doing that. Again, that falls into some of the earlier ways we started to critique student development theory. Constructs, on the other hand, are not grounded in particular dominant norms, but rather can be interpreted in multiple different ways. So that's why we went with constructs rather than theories. Um, I have to say, I think section two of this book is really quite beautiful. Um, And the reason that it's really beautiful is because of the authors who who wrote these chapters. The, The way that they are structured is that two authors wrote each chapter, one author presented a personal narrative that centered around the construct, and then the two authors together co-analyzed that narrative to then reimagine the particular construct. The narratives that the author shared are, are just are powerful. They're beautiful. There's song, there's poetry, there's uh, prose. There's even a, one of the songs, you could even uh, scan a QR code and, and hear the person performing the song. Um, and what pe- what these authors were willing to share was really just, um, yeah, quite remarkable. And that was really important because, you know, I think telling stories is what brings theory to life. You know, theory is I think, meaningless without the real lived experience. And critical theories, in particular, are intended to get into the real lived experiences and think of and Think about you know emancipation around around stories, and so we thought that these narratives really would make these theories much more um, relevant to be pe- to the readers. It was important to us that the two authors analyze the narratives together rather than one author analyzing another person's narrative because all too often it's people with power who are retelling the stories of marginalized individuals and we didn't want to perpetuate that kind of a pattern and so we brought so people came together to analyze their own story um, and to bring together different perspectives and people did that in a lot of different ways um, the one chapter uses uh, some duo ethnography so they engage in conversation chapter that gets into, um, Indigenous ways of knowing really tell gets it, gets into meaningful dialogue um, that's very true to the you know, the historical patterns of indigenous ways of knowing, and so it just it you know, it illustrates the kind of knowing that the theory is is um, it teaches us. Um, other people wrote about it in a more of an analytic way, but it's just showing again the way that. Knowledge can be produced in multiple different ways, depending on people's own lived experiences. So I have to say, as an editor, I was just taken by this section. And I never expected people to be as vulnerable and powerful as they were in these chapters.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and kudos to the three of you as editors for opening space for people to to write in that way. To even imagine some of these possibilities, um, and to bring some of that in, um, and, you know, the, the the contents here can, you know, uh, resilience, dissonance, agency, vulnerability. These can always be kind of considered by some. So, used so often in student affairs contexts that it can be considered buzzwords. And I loved reading these, and we get to unpack because I think I hear a lot of people use vulnerability without having a great definition, or critiquing it without having a great definition. Oh, are we we're having a little campus emergency there, Lisa? Oh, goodness.
3: I think I have to evacuate.
0: Well, this is the higher end life, first. Yeah. If you have to evacuate, we care about you. We care about you more than we care about the episode. So if you have to step away, maybe take your laptop with you. <laughs> yeah, you
2: know,
0: just, I'm taking my laptop. <laughs> just mute yourself and your video, right. and you can come back and rejoin us
2: um, right. when you're able.
3: I'll be back.
2: All right. <laughs> Some people will do anything to get out of a live video.
0: (laughs) Well, we've never done that before. Erica, good luck retweeting that. Um, So, Elisa has been asked to evacuate. Hopefully, she will be able to come back and join us, uh, but um, we'll get an update to folks one way or the other, make sure everything is okay. But uh, as I was saying, <laughs> kudos to, to you as editors for, for creating the openness. Um, these, these things, these concepts that you're exploring in greater detail here can often be buzzwords that are misused, um, used in this way, easily critiqued by giving a poor definition, um, things like that, but I really love the exploration and the dynamism of this year. Um, and I think it's something that people, as we use something like vulnerability in a lot of squishy ways, can come back to and reference. I think the other thing that I really loved here is the, the, the rabbit trail of the references and the other things and the, the modeling and, and all the places that it can lead, um, not just in terms of the concepts, but also in terms of process. So, um, and I just got to say, I love the idea of not recentering by critiquing. Um, and the power analysis there of not re-centering, and you know I, I'm, I'm reminded of community organizing work that says, let's not focus just on our problems, and let's not even just focus on our solutions, because if all we're doing is centering our solutions, we're still centering the problems. But how do we imagine possibilities and get beyond just the problems and imagine new things? Uh, and you've done this here in a beautiful um, scholarly way. Um, D.L., take us to uh, part three, which is, I think, what a lot of our, our viewers and listeners are interested in, is what do I do with this? How do I put this into my practice? Mm-hmm. As we mentioned before, student development theory, for many of us, has guided our practice. And we've started to critique that. And now, how can this guide our practice in a different way?
1: Absolutely, Keith. And before I get into part three, I want to name something really special also about section, uh, section two or part two. And that is that the, um, co- the, the author teams, one part, one of those authors in each team is either currently or very recently been either an undergraduate or graduate student um, who was writing with um, a faculty scholar okay and so to bring in the voices as authors as those who can write their own experience um, and that count as scholarly um, knowledge i think is really really powerful and very important Um, and it's something that i am consistently working with my own graduate students on is that your story, their stories do matter. And that is scholarship, all right? To bring that in and to analyze that. Um, and so I, I wanted to make sure I put that out there around. Part oh, yeah. two. Sure, part three, as I mentioned before, really gets into, like you were saying, what does this have to, how does this show up in practice? And the uh, introductory essay for this section uh, that I wrote, um, starts with talking with citing Clyde Parker and <laughs> Susan love loves that. I love Clyde Parker and, and I do, I, I, I don't know who Clyde Parker work. is. Help us learn. I love this work. I love this, um, this article, um, that Clyde wrote, um, that talks about. And so this yeah, is a, a scholar of say what
2: year 1977. Yes.
1: <laughs> nineteen seventy seven, which is why Susan thinks it's so funny that I love this work. But it's Clyde Parker is a student de- student development scholar. And uh, and in this particular article that he wrote in nineteen seventy-seven, and, and as I introduce this to my students, so I teach this article every year that I've taught student development theory, I've taught this article. And I tell students all the time, just because something was written before you were born, does not mean that it is not worthy of consideration. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have something to offer. Um, and I usually partner that with, you know, I came from the '70s as well, and I think I have something good to offer still. <laughs> so, <laughs> but in what is in the this name
0: article, of the article, DL?
1: So sure, it is, um, let me get the exact name It's a really simple title. It's called On Modeling Reality. And it is from um, the journal, it's from what is ne- what we now understand, what we now know, excuse me, as the Journal of College Student Development. Its original name was the Journal of College Student Personnel. Um, and so this is, this is a, a gem of, um, from the archives there of JCSD, of what's now JCSD on modeling reality um, and volume 18 uh, of that. And in this article, Parker is identifying the dilemma, the paradox and the problem of translating theory to practice, right? And he talks about the dilemma being that good research and theory require abstraction, right, of a few elements from the whole of human experience. So we can think about that abstraction of a few elements being those constructs, right? When we talk about and we hone in on resilience, there's Elisa. (laughs) Who, wonderful, you made it out. Um, but so we're talking about Clyde Parker, Lisa, and the dilemma being that, you know, when we can speak, we can focus on knowledge or context or resilience as a, in a sense, as a theoretical abstraction, right? Of the element practice though, when we actually work with students every day, that requires concrete and specific behavior in situations that are complex. Right? where multiple things are happening, there's no one thing, that, there's no one box right, that works there. And practice requires really concrete and specific behavior. And then we have this paradox. Theory dealing with abstractions cannot be applied in concrete and specific situations, but concrete and specific action flows from the personal theories of the actor right so what i've internalized as my rationale my understanding of why things are the way they are and therefore this is the lens i'm using to understand what's going on with the student with student the student group with the institution right and so the problem that parker identifies is learning how to transform formal theory into personal theories of action And so when we see and hear, as I have over the course of now going into 19 years of faculty work, um, and even going back into my first practitioner role straight out of undergrad, um, working in multicultural student services, that, and constantly hearing practitioners saying, well, I don't really use, I don't use theory, I don't, and saying they don't use theory. And what they're referencing is they perhaps are not using formal theory but they are using theories right they're using what they have internalized their personal theories for why how the how and the why and the what okay of student behavior um, you know we, we could bring in Lewin's model as well uh, Lewin's formulas, is another <laughs> Another thing that comes before, um, comes from the 80s, I think. Um, you know, the function, right? The function of um, behavior is a function of the interaction of the student in the environment. So we have theories about that, about how that works. This final section tries to resolve Parker's dilemma, the paradox and the problem of applying student development to student affairs practice by really helping to ground what happens in part one and part two and connect that to people's actual experience, right? With the hope that they'll internalize that um, and it becomes part of their personal theories of action, okay? And so, as we talk about earlier in the book, critical theories involve this critique of life as it is, right, Um, which is drawing on um, another scholar, uh, Jessup, um, we're also drawing on Martinez Alaman, um, Ana Martinez Alaman, who suggests that frameworks aim to produce social and political action. So the work of student affairs is not absent the context of the institution and the society that we function within. Okay, and so our practice can be liberatory or not. Okay. It's not simply something that happens on the day-to-day, on-the-ground bla- basis that has nothing to do with being liberatory, with being emancipatory, um, with because it, it can be that or not, right? And so this is the shortest section of the book, actually. Um, it, it's three chapters here, and then the concluding chapter um, is really not part of this section. Um, but these three core guiding tenets, as we think about um, what we, what has become almost ubiquitous in student affairs practice, um, how we talk about involvement and engagement, the principles of good practice, you know, so that literal model, the principles of good practice um, in student affairs, and then the notion of high impact practices. Okay, and wanting to rethink them as those three guiding tenets really are grounded in what we've learned from first and second wave models, right, Um, and rethinking them. What does it mean and what is the impact? And so these are not just um, takedowns of these three areas, but really wanting to, as Lee Patel would talk about, have a theory of change Okay, how do we approach this from a these ideas from a different standpoint, from a different lens, and create um, in a sense, you know, to, to adapt what Laverne Cox has talked about as possibility models for how we could practice student affairs differently, okay? And so, um, These chapters transform formal theory into personal theories of action to instigate, um, as is written in the introductory essay for this part, to instigate concrete and specific actions for application in concrete and specific situations, right? So really, we could say that embedded in each chapter is the assertion that one's worldview and how you understand reality and how you understand knowledge matters for how one does the work of facilitating student learning, meaning making, and development. It's something that I talk about in, um, in my classes. I have them start with, how do you understand the world? What's your worldview? Because that's going to inform how you approach questions, issues, qu- you know, concerns that you have with working with students and the work that you do as a student affairs professional. So, in these three chapters, we end up ga- engaging all of those, um, those three constructs I mentioned before, um, involvement and engagement, Dan Tillepaw brings us into that. Um, chapter 16, Susan Marine talked about those principles of good practice. And then the um, the last chapter in that section on high impact practices is co-written by Alex Lang and I. And the thing about this, Alex, Susan, and Dan, although are all um, Alex um, and uh, Alex is currently a doctoral student. Susan and Dan are currently faculty, but all three of them have a deep base of practitioner experience. Okay, so they they are really engaging with what they have engaged deeply in what the work of student affairs actually is. And several of them actually draw on and and reached out to current practitioners to also help them engage these ideas and rethinking um, these principles of practice.
0: Thank you so much, DL, for, for walking us through that. Um, I want to do a little bit of cleanup here. One, thank huge kudos to Erica, who got a, a link to that article by Clyde Parker on <laughs> modeling reality out via Twitter. So thank you nice. so much, Erica. I uh, also want to mention that uh, Layla McLeod and Jenia Betancourt, if I'm getting that right, are, off, are doing a virtual um, book club around this particular book. And uh, we've also shared with folks um, a a discount code that Stylus is offering. If you wanna order this awesome book through Stylus, you can use the discount code RETHINK, without the I, R-E-T-H-N-K, and get a 20% discount. So a little bit of cleanup on Twitter. And then the other thing is we've had someone, and I've just lost it in my feed here as I'm trying to do 37 things at once. Uh, people loved your comment that some good things did come from the 70s, myself included. <laughs> Aja, Johnson, Aja Johnson has asked us, um, how, how are you as authors going to use this book you, as a text in your courses? Because I think we have so mm-hmm. many faculty who have taught student development theory are going to read this, going to have just be full with new ideas. And I saw so many in the lead up to this episode, so many faculty saying, "Oh." Sight unseen, I've just assigned it in my class, uh, which is a huge compliment to the to the authors and to the editors and your credibility. Um, I also want to mention, we do have Elisa is back with us for folks who are listening. We can see her. She's safe. She's outside. It looks like a lovely day there in Southern Ohio. I don't know if we can hear you. It's a beautiful it. day. At-
3: I, I've been, I'm on mute because there are fire alarms. It was a fire <laughs> alarm. Um, and so, but I am, I think... Everything is fine here, for okay. anyone concerned. And I appreciate all the people who have texted me to make sure I'm okay as well. Yeah. Everything is so, fine, yeah.
0: And Hugh, thankfully, this is a student affairs live episode. So we are all very familiar with fire alarms and exiting the <laughs> building, and we all are the ones when we stay over at hotels, and, and escorting people out the door because of our student affairs training all throughout. So we are glad <laughs> you are safe. Uh, but I would just like to real quickly as we're coming up on our time here, I'd like to just kind of hear from each of you. Elisa, uh, we'll maybe begin with you you went into this, all three of you went into this, with so much knowledge and understanding and perspective, and, and were sort of guiding this. Yeah. What did you learn, and then how are you going to use this in your courses?
3: Um, sure. And can you hear me OK outside? Yeah. We can also yeah. kind of hear um, the
0: people walking by. So that's great.
3: Um, <laughs> so, environment. That's right. So um, I mean, for me, I learned. Again, I, t- I go back to the authors. I learned so much from what the authors wrote in the in these chapters. I think for me, you know, I, for the past many years, I've been talking about the importance of using critical perspectives, for student development theory, but I think oftentimes I fall into a trap of intellectualizing it too much, of really thinking about it very theoretically, and not and while being very aware aware of how critical theories impact people, I think sometimes I've stepped away from the real lived experiences of why this is so important. And so for me, just engaging in this project and the great, the importance, the voices that authors brought to this really spoke to me about, um, it was a reminder to me of just how important this work is and, and making sure I'm always listening to my students when they are talking about just how important this work is, and it's not just about advancing the scholarship, but how directly it really impacts their lives. So that's something that's really stuck with me from this project. Like I feel transformed as an educator as a result of working on this book. Um, in terms of how I plan to use it, you know, I am still wrestling with questions around using it in introductory courses, using it in more of advanced student development theory courses you know, it it goes back to Susan's comment about the waves and that each wave builds upon the other. And so we need to understand all of the waves in order to understand the third wave. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm just teaching one student development theory course, how to do all of it justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I don't introduce these ideas early on, again, who is still invisible? And so I'm still wrestling a lot with I want to use the book in every course because I think it's these ideas are necessary for, for everyone, um, every student development theory course. Um, and so I intend to be using it in I mean, introductory, advanced, doctoral, in some way, perhaps in more depth in some classes than in other classes. That's right, where then I then am then. right now
0: yeah, so thanks for that. I love this notion of what are students ready for at different parts in their journey? And scholarship is cumulative, and how do we build toward this um, with also the sense of urgency of people feeling and being seen in that. So that's uh, some great considerations uh, for folks. Um, Susan, how are how are what did you learn through this process and um, how are you planning on integrating this into your courses and and what suggestions would you have for others?
2: Well, that's a great question. Uh, how I planned. I'm I'm uh, actively thinking about it, but I think um, what I've a couple things that I learned. I learned a lot, but uh, and to echo what Elisa and DL said earlier, I was blown away by uh, the 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 vulnerability of the chapter authors and um, their willingness to take us places that uh, we may not have gone otherwise. And so uh, learning from that, learning what happens when you remove constraints um, Mm -hmm. for people. And and I think sometimes older theories are perceived as constraints. So if we open up those possibilities, what happens? Um, I think I also continue to think about how to hold the old and the new simultaneously um so i find some people are really quick to just land on the critical perspectives without uh, and those those theories were not developed with college students in mind or student development in mind so i think we have to be a little bit cautious about a universal application and know kind of how it is we're using those theories um so in terms of how i'm going to approach my classes i'm still trying to figure out how to integrate this. Um, I don't want to do a chronological uh, conceptualization of, you know, you start at the beginning and you end with the critical perspectives. Um, I do think that there's something enduring about ideas that come from some of the early theories. Like, for example, I often think about Belenke et al.'s work, um, and they were building upon the work of William Perry. But they made the point that for um, marginalized populations, dissonance is what is not what's needed to promote learning. It's support. A lot of people don't know that. So, like, how can we delve into some of the earlier theories in ways where we've missed important points that that do probably translate into um, the contemporary realities and lived experiences of. Um, students today. So, uh, I love thinking about this in new ways and the book has really helped me to do that.
0: Great. Great. Thank you. DL, how, uh, what did you learn and, and how are you going to integrate this or suggest others might think about it? Sure. Um, I
1: found my experience with this text to be very affirming. Um, As someone who, you know, comes into this work um, and not saying that this isn't true for Susan and Elisa at all, but my orientation coming into this work is very grounded in the I don't see myself here Um, and being very sympathetic to students saying I don't see myself here, which is something that um, Elisa uh, specifically also articulated earlier on in our conversation um and so for me i found this book really affirming i learned the ways that it is possible to do this right and so this text as i mentioned earlier drawing from laverne cox is a possibility model right um for how to engage these ideas differently and to um, apply them differently and so being expanding my my understanding of how broad that post possibilities are and how deep they are was incredibly meaningful to me in terms of how I'm using it. So, like I have to use it right. I'm teaching student <laughs> development theory like right now, we are in week five. Uh, <laughs> so I had to figure this out really quickly um because I wanted to use the text. and and so, I have I have also wrestled in the past, like Alisa um, and Susan both attended to the idea of well, we have to know what came first first, um, and then walk into and this building up of things. I mean, I've literally said that to students. Um, you know, you've got to you got to know what was before you you know like critique it and and whatnot. Um, and I I don't agree with that anymore. So I've had students too often in in the classes I teach our Sahi program um, at Colorado State happens to be well not happens to be has been um, built um, as a, a place that is where it is possible um, for. Minoritized students to to see themselves in the classroom, and we have majority minoritized students in our cohorts now, and we're and they're not just just majority minoritized, and I mean that not just race and ethnicity, but also sexuality and gender and disability. Um, so bringing all of those things together, we have either singly or multiply right? Um, majority of students who hold one or more of those identities, minoritized identities. And so um, they come in also with having already had experience contending with first and second wave ideas of the world okay and paradigms of the world and having to make sense of them and push back on them and so this year actually we are starting with third wave (laughs) we are starting with this text um and we've talked about and i have always been in the last well particularly in the last two years talking about worldview as the beginning and i am now sort of coupling that with okay let's talk about use that as to as the segue into thinking about other kinds of worldviews that could exist and other ways to think about these here here are some constructs here are some ways to think about them and then going into these are how these things have been discussed previously let's interrogate them through the lenses we've already built okay and see what can be rescued from the fire right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So, I've talked about, I use that metaphor um, uh, for the last two, to three years now. Huh? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your house is on fire. You have to leave. What do you take with you? Right? Um, and are there things that are worth taking with you? And we've discovered over the last couple of years that there are things that are worth taking with us from first and second waves. And and particularly once we have an appropriate and fuller understanding and accurate and fuller understanding of what is in them. So as Susan mentioned, right, that Perry actually does not hype dissonance, right? Um, He hypes support, (laughs) right? And that that becomes um, like, oh, you know, and and then leaving behind what needs to be left behind, right? But trusting that students can, um, in a sense, get thrown into the deep end of the pool and learn how to engage from that end, mm-hmm. instead of a pedagogy that still centers the need to start here, right? So that's. Um, And That's that's kind of where I am right now. We'll see how this goes. Like I said, we are in week five. We have week five's class is Thursday tomorrow. So we'll see see at the end of the semester how this works out. But I think um, I'm excited about this experiment um, of organizing the class in this way. The students seem to be really engaged and are loving it. And, and we are able, because we're doing it in this way, to right now be able to deal with actual things that are happening on our campus. Right. 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 Um, so we we are still in the aftermath of thinking about blackface and, and what that means and what it means when students engage in parodies of other people's lived experiences. Right. Um, and being able to be like, okay, here we go. We right now have some theoretical frameworks that can help us make sense of this, so.
0: Well, and I love what you're modeling. Um, I appreciate the poignancy of the, what do you take when there's a fire? Clearly for Elisa, it's the laptop today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also love, deal what you're modeling of, I used to think this and I don't think that anymore. And so I'm using the book in this ways and we'll see how that goes right, which is a really great learner mindset. Let, let's try this and, and let's see how it goes. Um, a couple of things, uh, thanks thanks to all three of you for being wonderful guests, for editing this book, for bringing the authors together, for sharing it so beautifully today. Um, I wanna mention uh, again, um, Layla McLeod, and, uh, let's see if I can do it, Genia. Betancourt, thank you for the the correction of the pronunciation via Twitter. Are doing a virtual book club. There is the the, the Rethink with LDI, R-E-T-H-N-K. If you order through Stylus, a 20% discount on the book. So uh, I'm just grateful to all three of you for your time today as panelists. Uh, also, to the great work of our producers behind the scenes and to Erica for tweeting and managing the back channel and getting all these resources out. You can sort of receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter or at our archives. The next episode will be with uh, host Heather Shea, who will be doing multicultural competence in student affairs with Rochelle Pope and Amy Reynolds. That will be on Wednesday, October 2nd at 1 p.m eastern time. Uh, Thanks to everyone for your participation. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to everyone being a part of this. My name is Keith Edwards uh, and we will see you next time. Enjoy a great day.